If you're looking for inspiration and challenge in the world of early years and Key Stage 1 education, then you've just found it. Welcome to the Early Excellence Podcast. Hello everybody, Andy Burt here with episode 49 of the Early Excellence Podcast. Coming up in this week's episode, we have a fascinating chat with Helen Hawes. Helen is a physical development expert who works with schools and settings to support them in developing their practice. Now, as part of our chat, we talk about all sorts of things, really. We talk about the importance of physical development as a prime area. We talk about how crucial it is to see physical development as part of that bigger picture around holistic child development. We talk about child developmental stages and the understanding of those different stages. And we also discuss strategies to support children in terms of physical development. So lots, lots covered here, lots to really get you thinking. Here you go. Here's my chat with Helen Hawes all about physical development. How are you? Hi, Andy. Good, thank you. How are you? I'm very well. Yeah, not bad at all. Not bad at all. Thanks. Um, we're going to be talking all about physical development, aren't we? Which I know is a real passion of yours, something that you're really interested in. Um, Absolutely. Really looking forward to talking to you about this because I know that you 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 support schools in all kinds of different ways around physical development, and I, I find it really interesting talking to you that that in depth understanding of actually what are we aiming for and what would you do to support children. Um, so we're going to cover lots of different things, aren't we? Um, yeah. Just before we get on to that, can you tell us a little bit about your background and you know how you became interested in young children's physical development? When what was the starting point for it? Um, when I had my own family, really, Andy, um, I've always been heavily involved with sport for as long as I can remember, um, from grassroots level right up to national, both as a, a player, a coach, an assessor, um, and also a, a tutor and an assessor for national governing bodies. So getting coaches through the qualifications to deliver high quality PE and sport. Um, and then I've taught PE in primary schools for ooh, coming up 20 years now. Um, so I've always been really passionate about being able to develop skills and, and bring children out to be the best they can be physically for that sporting performance. Uh, but then I've sort of changed my approach with having my own family. Um, obviously, with my background, I was quite passionate about giving my, my, my girls the best start in life physically. So I've spent basically seven years researching good child development and, and what can be done at home to, to support good child development. Um, and it, it amazed me to, to find out things that I previously had no knowledge about, um, you know, content that would really help schools and families that's just not widely out there. It's not common knowledge. Um, so I've sort of changed my approach with work to, with the aim of sharing the knowledge that I've gained um, to support more, more families and more schools to nurture that good all-round development in young children. Fantastic. Fantastic. It, it is really interesting, isn't it? That when you think about, say, say in the early years, of course, physical development is one of those prime areas, isn't it? It's one of the prime areas for learning. Yeah. And yet, actually, you wouldn't always know that. I think, and that sounds a bit controversial, but we we don't really look into physical development to the same depth 
I think, quite often than that we do other things. Absolutely. So, so phonic development, for example. Yeah, yeah, classic. Phonics isn't one of the prime areas. Um, And yet, actually, you know, physical development, what we know about young children in terms of physical development is that, of course, learning and development in physical development underpins learning across all of those different areas. So it's it's fascinating, isn't it, that actually... We don't often talk about it specifically in, in in as much depth as I think we probably should. Um, so tell us about your current work in schools and you go into schools. And um, when did that start? You know, when did you start supporting schools in, in the way that you currently are? How did, how did that? Um, so I, I switched from the, the PE role into the work that I'm doing now after I had my, my second daughter who was just turned five. Yeah. Um, basically, no, number one, she was like the textbook child, you know, slept brilliantly, everything was hunky-dory. Um, second one came along and it was like, well, what, what's this that I'm dealing with? Completely different, you know, <laughs> didn't sleep, d- difficulty weaning, just screamed all the time, digestive issues, sensory issues. Um, so it's what I've learned as a mum through my own research, I wish I'd have known prior to having the kids. Mm. Um, so basically what I'm doing now is, is trying to support schools and families in, in tackling those difficulties that a lot of families face mm. uh, because there's so many. When you think about it, there's literally hundreds of thousands of families and children up and down the country struggling with sensory issues or poor emotional regulation or poor physical development but they're not getting the the support that they deserve and that they need um so my aim really in school is to to try and put strategies in place to support good child development to to overcome these you know the barriers to learning to overcome the difficulties with the the emotional regulation with the sensory issues Um, and the aim is really not to not just to mask those symptoms, you know, putting short-term strategies in place, you know, we'll, we'll sit a child on a wobble cushion to give them more proprioceptive input to keep them focused for longer. Um, that's great on a short-term basis, but what, what we aim to do is get to the root cause of why have these children got these difficulties and how can we tackle it on a, you know, to solve it on a long-term basis? Yes, yeah. And are there... Are there quite common things that you do when you work with schools? Are there certain things that you tend to do quite a lot? Are there, are there yeah, so one of the, the, there's two sort of strands to what I do. So one is ensuring that children have those physical skills ready for yeah. learning. Um, so obviously, you know, the, the common things, the, the fine motor skills, have they got sufficient posture, have they got good posture to enable them to sit in a chair in an upright position or are they you know are they fatiguing sitting off to the side which is affecting the, the visual tracking um yes. auditory processing um so it's it's about looking at how we can build those physical skills in setting by changing the activities that we're doing slightly um so you know if we're looking at a book do we need to be sat on a chair where the children aren't gaining anything from that physically or can it be done in tummy time, can the children be laid on their tummies on the carpets while they're looking through a book so that we're building the shoulder stability, the elbow stability, the wrist stability? 
that's going to help longer term with their handwriting. Mm. Um, can we be changing activities to work on a vertical surface um, so that we're bringing in spatial awareness, we're bringing in visual skills? Um, mm. Can we work on a vertical surface while standing on a wobble cushion? Mm. Um, if no, do you know, I've not encountered a wobble cushion before. <laughs> Tell us about the what. I don't know whether other people do know about wobble cushions. The, the, yeah, it's one of the most common aids um, in settings. So it's it's basically a, a circular disc that's inflated, and it's got a slightly bumpy surface on one side and a more bumpy surface on the other. And okay. if you were to if you were to stand or sit on that, it just challenges the balance and the core. Um, so we we try and use that as much as we can in settings. So if a child is working on a vertical surface, great. But if mm -hmm. they are capable of standing on a wobble cushion, what's that? what that's doing is, is challenging the core and the balance even more to develop those physical skills for higher learning. Yeah, Inter it's really interesting. Very interesting indeed. Um, I, I think also, I think what's interesting about what you're talking about is that you're looking at physical development, not just as part of, of course, like a PE lesson, mm -hmm. but you're looking at it holistically in terms of how physical development links to what they're doing every day. And Absolutely. what skills they're needed for every day. And so in terms of your support within schools, is you look very much holistically at the, at the whole child. Is that right? Absolutely, yeah. I, I keep harping on about developing the whole child. That's my, <laughs> my big message to schools. We need to think about the whole child. Um, and basically, without when you look into it, there's so much evidence. Without good physical development, we're not going to get good development overall long term. Mm. Um, so it's really important that everything we do supports that physical development. Um, and what I try and say to to staff in different settings is what value is this activity giving to the child what are they gaining from this activity can it be done in a different way so that we can be working on the physical whilst we're looking at you know the, the phonics the maths mm -hmm. yeah so it's just yeah. it's looking at doing things slightly different it doesn't require any more you know time it's not taking up chunks of the day it's just doing things slightly different to make a huge difference to getting huge benefit in terms yeah. of developing those physical skills that will support all-round development. Yeah, it is fascinating. Do, do you find, I don't know what, um, whether you've noticed it, but I guess you probably have. Um, have you found a difference in terms of children's physical development following on from lockdown, the lockdowns? Yeah, I mean, there's various studies being done um, to show that hand strength has, has declined in the last 20 years massively mm -hmm. um and and physical skills in general in younger children are just not what they used to be mm -hmm. um but particularly with <laughs> the knock-on effect of lockdown when you think children have not had that that stimulation in terms of different sensory experiences they've not had opportunities to go and, and play like they would have done um, they've not been in settings, so they've been, you know, some children, when you think about it, have literally been tied to four walls, possibly mm -hmm. with mum or dad or whoever, stuck on a laptop. What are they, you know, if they're working mm -hmm. from home, what are they forced to do with those children? Yes. Yeah? yeah. We're, we're very quick to criticise parents in these situations, but some parents have had no choice. 
than to, to stick their yeah, child yeah. on a screen for hours and hours because yeah, they're yeah. trying to hold a job down. And that it, we are seeing the impact of that in settings up and down the country. I think yeah. there's, um, I mean, I know from the settings I worked in, we, it's really, really noticeable. Um, the number mm. of children that are coming in with really weak physical skills but mm. also additional needs. Um, there's lots more children coming in that we're questioning for, you know, autism, ADHD, dyslexia, all, you know, all the labels that, that yes. say that there's something amiss somewhere in terms of development. There's a lot more red flags in, in the classes coming through now in, in the reception. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and are there sort of, are there key pieces of advice that you that you give to teachers and practitioners when working with children and you've mentioned some of them already and I'm just sort of particularly interested in that idea of you know you were saying about tummy time yes you know, of, of children being on their tummies yeah that of course is one of those early developmental stages that children need to be spending time on their tummies and you think you you would relate it naturally more to kind of I suppose you know a, a baby or a toddler wouldn't you, that actually then they're yes. leaving that, that at that point in development. And I wonder how much of your work is about kind of tracking back through the developmental stages and saying, well, actually, the gap was there and yeah. they didn't get that at that point. And maybe to advise that they need that at this point to, to fill that gap. Is that, is that I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing. I don't know. But no, you're absolutely spot on, aren't they? And this is this is the issue. Um and again, you know, we're quick to criticise parents when we when we get a child in setting that comes in at reception and they haven't got these skills. There, there is a reason for that. And it's, you know, there's various reasons, but a lot of it is down to um, missed opportunities in the home. But to be fair to parents, it depends what support they've had. So I've had two children. I've had two health visitors. Um, I was fortunate that... I had young children before lockdown kicked in. Um, mm. So, you know, families through lockdown, some of them first-time parents, they've never, they didn't even see a health visitor. They've had no yeah. advice. It's, um, we're not giving families the support that they need mm. to be able to develop the child to the, the full potential. Yeah. So what we're doing in settings is sort of going back in time and, mm. and putting children through those activities giving them the sensory experiences a whole range of things we need to consider that really should have been done in in the you know in infancy that yeah. they may have missed or they've not had enough of um or it could be that they've had all of that but something else has impeded on their development but by going back and retracing going through those again um, we can improve that development. Mm, yeah, and, and does your work focus on on mainly indoors, or, or do you look at outdoors as well and sort of supporting children physically outdoors too? You know? Both, Andy. Um, yeah. I mean, I encourage. You know, I'm a big believer in getting kids outside in in all weathers. Um, mm. There's there's a lot of opportunity outdoors. For yeah. physical development um yeah. sometimes it's it's easier to create those opportunities outdoors um just because of, of space uh, depending yeah. on the setting um that's it doesn't mean to say that you know all the physical has to be outside there's so yeah. many opportunities to develop the physical inside yes um, yeah, yeah. and going back to those 
those little suggestions that can make a big difference. Um, one of the the common issues that that practitioners are reporting back is that there's more and more children coming through with speech and language difficulties. Yeah, um, yeah. So one of the things I advise is this: there's some simple exercises that children can be doing um, to strengthen the muscles in the mouth. So there's different mm. oral exercises that you could do, you know, five minutes in the morning, five minutes in, a, in an afternoon that can make a big difference to the clarity of the speech. Um, yeah. So it's just looking at ways of building those opportunities in without taking time out of the day. So yeah. it might be that while one member of staff's doing the, the register, somebody else is stood at the front leading those oral exercises, mm-hmm. and the rest of the ch- and the children are following those those exercises. Yeah, it might be that they're doing their oral exercises whilst holding a, a half plank position. So we're working on core as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just yeah. kind of thinking outside the box to to build in as many opportunities as possible to do, you know, so we're developing the whole child, but without taking time out of the day and putting more and more demands on on practitioners that are already stretched. Yes. But you're right, isn't it? That if you are going to make a physical change to to your body, you know, to anybody's body, it has to be through continued use doesn't it you know when you talk about athletes yes. training or what you know whatever you're training for yeah it has to be something that is done on a regular basis or daily basis doesn't it really in yeah order that your body is used to that and you build that core strength yeah and yeah. it's the same of course for young children isn't it that actually we need we need those opportunities on a regular basis so the things that you do as part of a routine during the register time or um or as part of your continuous provision are crucial aren't they and sometimes really simple things you know um for example you know painting painting could be done sat down or it could be done stood at an easel yes, if children are yes. standing at an easel then they are developing that core strength as they're painting as well as that hand-eye coordination and the different physical skills in terms of using their arms as well of course yeah a very different way of working than sitting at a table yeah and yet we don't often think in detail i think about what's happening happening physically mm-hmm. within those moments and how actually if something's available continuously like that then we are we're building strength we're building core strength and the same for outside as well you know the big physical movements outside are key aren't they you know the, the lifting the carrying the balancing all yeah the absolutely yeah which all helps with the you know those those major muscle groups, um, which without the strength in the major muscle groups, we're not going to get the fine tuning in the smaller muscles that we need for the, the fine motor skills for the pencil control. Um, but going back to the, the working on a vertical surface, an easel, mm-hmm. for example, if we can work big scale as well on a vertical surface, we're bringing in so many different elements. So we're bringing in the visual skills, the, the visual tracking, which is essential for, for reading. Um, we're bringing in spatial awareness, which we need for our, you know, our maths columns, our positioning on the page for our writing. Um, we can encourage children to cross the midline. So there's a lot, a lot of children now can't do that naturally um, because there's barriers in place, physical barriers in place. So we have an imaginary midline running from our crown down the centre of our body to our, our toes, which divides the body between left and right. Um, and it's a dead simple check, actually. If you work in a setting, it's an interesting check. If you ask children to actually stand like a star 
and take the right hand over to the left knee, can they do that? Or do they actually physically jolt when they get to that midline? Mm-hmm. Um, and if they do, we're going to have issues with bilateral coordination, which is the ability to use two hands at the same time to complete a task such as tying shoelaces or holding the page with one hand and writing with the other. So it's this is the sort of thing, it's, it's just taking that physical development to the next level um, to, to improve awareness in our settings amongst our staff. Because obviously the, the emphasis is on the the fine the fine motor skills for the writing, yeah. That's that's the bigger. But we need to think bigger. Um, we need to be thinking about the visual tracking. We need to be thinking about the, the spatial awareness and all those other things that quite often get missed. Yeah, yeah, and and we don't think in detail about that, do we? We often will identify certain things in terms of particular needs that children have and identify identify them as a a special educational need Mm -hmm. but we we often don't see the physical part within that yeah to me that we will often identify speech and language as an issue yeah and not but then miss the fact that actually this child isn't just um developmentally delayed in terms of speech and language but that actually it's a more holistic issue including the, the the gross motor movements yeah, which I think yeah. is interesting. I also think we often, because I think we put such a lot of emphasis on the process of learning to write, rightly or wrongly, um, we I see a lot of, of teachers and practitioners focusing in on the fine motor control with children who are not aren't, have not yet got the gross motor control. And that actually, I think there is a process involved there that I think we're missing out elements of. Yeah. And that isn't going to help children in the long run. Is that something you agree with? Absolutely, Andy. Um, One of my (laughs) biggest pet hates (laughs) drives me mad, and I could offend a lot of people here, but I don't know why we are so obsessed as a profession with asking children to write their names every morning when they enter into the setting. Mm -hmm. So many children are not developmentally ready for that exercise, for that activity. And what is the child gaining from that activity? Yeah. Is that something that's going to infuse them to come into school to, to perform a task that they're going to be unsuccessful at? Would it make you want to go into the office? <laughs> no, it's a good point, isn't it? If you find something hard and you are hit with it straight away as soon as you come in, yeah. then you're not going to be massively enthusiastic. It is a good point. It, it I think we forget point. that we're dealing with little people. We, you know, we're not just mm. numbers there to produce outcomes for, for offset and, and mm. a, you know, yeah. a rigid system. We're dealing with little humans that have feelings and opinions. And I don't mm. think we give enough recognition to that sometimes um we don't kind of put ourselves in the children's shoes enough um because the system expects that we do x y and z but as a practitioner i like to think right what is what is the child gaining from this activity how can it be adapted to suit the needs of that child yeah um and i would always say that we need to meet the the child where they are at developmentally because if we're not they're missing out, they're not gaining from that activity. Um, so if 
you know, if a child has no idea how to hold a pencil, even after they've been guided, something's amiss somewhere in terms of the development. So our job is to find out what the root cause is, what is that barrier to, to that skill and address it. So it could be that, like you say, we haven't, that child hasn't developed the, the gross motor skills. So could it be that instead of writing the name, if we do a bit of letter recognition, if you pin their letters of the name up on a, a vertical surface, can we encourage them to jump and touch the letters in the right order to spell their name? Mm. Yeah. So they're still, we're still working on the name, um, but at the same time, we're bringing in the visual skills. We're developing those gross gross motor, those major muscle groups for the gross motor skills, which in turn will lead to improved fine motor skills. Yeah. Um, we're bringing in spatial awareness. You know, we we just there's so much more involved that that we're missing. Yeah, yeah. It, it, just going back to that idea, you know, if if a child hasn't, you know, you were saying earlier on that physically, in terms of the children's hands, that over the last twenty years, that that children um, were seeing more and more children coming into school without that 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 strength or development in terms of their physical skills of using their hands. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you focus in on? Is that something that you do a lot of work with with school? And, and if so, what does that look like? Not particularly focusing on hand strength because everything, if you if you follow things in a logical order, things will happen naturally. We don't need to be spending hours doing interventions for fine motor skills. Hmm. We're wasting our time doing interventions in the wrong order, if you see what I mean. Yeah. yeah. Um, so if we, you know, if the child hasn't got those good control of, of the body, if they haven't got good development of the major muscle groups and the gross motor skills, we're wasting our time doing those interventions for the fine motor. Yes, it will it will help to some degree. I'm not completely dismissing that, but if we get the basics in place first the fine motor skills will happen much more naturally and much more quickly. And that's yes. that's also true for a comp, you know a range of other skills. Yeah. Um, like we said earlier about cro- the ability to cross that midline, we're, not, we're going to struggle with the bilateral coordination. Um, so it's about looking at things holistically rather than honing in on, right, we, you know, we're focusing on our writing, we've got to have excellent pencil control. Um, we're going to build hand strength. We don't need to just work on hand strength. It's looking at things collectively. So like you said about, you know, working outdoors, lifting tires, rolling tires, lifting crates, pushing, pulling heavy objects, carrying, lifting, um, challenging children physically. There's so much involved in all of those those activities. Um, There's helping with balance, Mm. core strength, core stability shoulder stability, wrist stability, hand strength, and developing the big and small muscle groups, the visual tracking. So it's it's just looking at things collectively rather than honing in on a particular skill, if you like. Yeah, no, absolutely. That that makes complete sense. I think the big physical movements are something we don't focus in on enough. Mm -hmm. I I think actually, and sometimes that is about people's, people being quite... um, cautious about children taking risks that they see the big physical movements as being risky as well um 
and that actually it kind of feels much safer if you're talking about a busy fingers area rather than children lifting and carrying big tires and stacking crates and so on yeah um, but I can see completely the value of the lifting, the carrying, the rolling, the stacking things up, the big, big physical challenge. And I th- I also think that it's, in the, uh, and you've mentioned this as well a few times, that, that when we're talking about physical development, it's not just physical development. So, for example, one of the things that I often talk about is that when children are lifting and carrying big, heavy things, we are challenging them physically. You know, if they're trying to move a tire or if they're trying to move crates or whatever it might be, big, heavy planks of wood, mm-hmm. we are challenging them physically. So great, that's that's covered. But also if something is so heavy that a child finds it difficult to lift, they're going to have to work together with other children to lift it. So already you're prompting them to be collaborative. Yeah. If children are collaborative with open-ended materials, then they're going to have to start to in some way communicate what we want to do with it and where is it going to go even yeah. if that's just using gestures then actually we're commu- they they are communicating together as to what they're doing with those open-ended resources because yeah. it's not clear is it what you yeah. what, the, what this group of crates are going to be or what you're going to do with it is not clear unless actually we're going to work we're going to have to work together on it yeah. so so i think you're absolutely right. I think that actually the physical development is one big part of it, but actually we don't see it in isolation. It's it, learning, learning and development is always most effective when it's meaningful, and it's meaningful when actually there's a, when the children see a point to it, when they're yeah. busy, when they're engaged in it. Absolutely, oh, yeah. and it's it's just a case of building on it as well. Obviously, you know we're not going to throw these children in at the deep end and, and put them off life for coming back to our settings but it's about building things gradually so you know it might be initially that they've no idea how to set an obstacle course up so you might you know you might set up Mm. one end of an obstacle course and leave resources around for for the children to develop that as they see appropriate and you know be there to guide and support uh, but as time goes on um, and they're more comfortable in the, their environment and exploring ideas and, as you say, working collaboratively, can we challenge them to say, right, well, we've been working in this space now, but what I want you to do as a as a team is we're going to work over in this space mm-hmm. and leave it open-ended. You know, how are they going to work as a team to get the planks, the blocks, the crates, from there onto the field next door or wherever it is that you're going, put the bikes, the scooters out. Can they transport them more efficiently using bikes and trikes and scooters? Or is it better that they're, they're carrying and working together? And as you say, that brings out all the, the communication and the language and the problem solving. Um, by giving children that freedom to explore ideas as a team, um, and we, we do like to set challenges in our settings for children. You know, one of the, one of the things I like to do is uh, more more in the summer term um, is to get children bare feet and get, get the water out and set a challenge of getting water from A to B. Um, so can we create a river without any leaks um, and create a dam at, at the bottom of the river? And that is you'd be amazed at how long a task like that can keep children engaged for and the the learning that you see and the enthusiasm you know the 
the quieter characters can come out in those situations. Um, you see the problem solving in action. You see the collaborative working. You see the, the communication coming out that you wouldn't see necessarily indoors or on independent tasks, obviously. Um, but it's, it's absolutely magic to watch it in, in action. It's absolutely magic. Yeah, fantastic. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, when I was chatting to you before, um, you mentioned retained reflexes. Yes. Yeah? So when we've talked before, retained reflexes. And um, I think it's, it's a term that I'm, I'm not overly you know, aware of, particularly. That I, that I, and, and so I kind of have looked into it a bit following on from when we've been talking about it. But I found it, yeah, I found it really interesting. Tell us about retained reflexes. So I came across retained reflexes by basically um, researching around my my second daughter. Um, you know, I spent four years researching why is my child bonkers, basically. Um, <laughs> and I came across the work of Sally Goddard Live, um, who is so knowledgeable. I refer to her as the, the queen of reflexes. Um, she... she what she doesn't know about reflexes isn't worth knowing. Um, and we aren't all actually familiar with reflexes. It's just mm. not talked about. Um, so to give you an example of a reflex, we all know that when a baby is born, if we put our finger across the palm of a newborn's hand, they will automatically close their fingers around and grip our finger. Mm. So that is called the palm of grasp reflex okay so we're all born with a set of different primitive reflexes um they develop in utero in the womb and each reflex has a different role um, for basic human survival when the body realizes that it doesn't need those reflexes anymore they should become what we call integrated yeah so they become dormant in effect. They never completely disappear, but they lay dormant so that they can be re-recruited in the future if needed, um, for example, in, in times of trauma. Um, what that does, when they become integrated, it frees up for the next stage of development. So our primitive reflexes typically become integrated by around six months. And then that makes way for more mature reflexes, what we refer to as postural reflexes, um, which can take up to three and a half years to develop. Um, and they're connected to the, the higher centers of the brain, which is why it takes longer for those to develop. Um, but Sally Goddard Live acknowledges that, well, she refers to a cluster of, when we get a cluster of retained reflexes um, she refers to it as neuromotor immaturity and it argues that it's a good indicator that something's not quite right in certain areas of the brain things aren't developing in sync um, as they should be so it might be that there's a delay in certain areas of the brain now reflexes can become retained for all sorts of reasons um, if we go back to the primitive reflexes we have several primitive reflexes that are designed to assist the birthing process um, so we've got different neck reflexes um, and an 
a spinal gland reflex, which are designed to help twist the neck and wriggle the baby to assist the birthing process down at the birth canal to help mum. Um, so quite often, if babies haven't gone through that process, C-section babies can be prone mm-hmm. to those retained reflexes. Um, stressful births, prolonged labours. There's all sorts of reasons that can, that, all sorts of factors that can cause retained reflexes. It's not necessarily, you know, poor parenting. Now, the issue is that if a child has a retained reflex, it can massively impact on their day-to-day life, um, depending what reflex is retained and to what severity, because a reflex can be partially retained or it can be fully retained. And depending on how severely it's retained, that will impact on the severity of the symptoms and the difficulties Mm. that that child faces. So to put that into context, um, give you some examples, the spinal gland reflex is designed to help baby wriggle down the birth canal. If that is retained for whatever reason, these are the children that can't sit still in a chair. So they're often mistaken for having ADHD um, because it's the reflex is elicited, it's recruited by touching the back so they're hypersensitive on the back so they don't like to sit in a chair so you might find that a child can't sit still in a chair um so they're wriggling and they're, they're up and down out the seats or you know the forwards and backwards side to side um they are the, you know the distract the distracted child child that's not able to concentrate and focus and attend um but lay them on a tummy to up at a book and read they're absolutely fine um and this is where my work comes into schools is it's trying to get to the root cause so if a child is presenting with difficulties or you know unusual behaviors is it behavior or is there an underlying reason that's been missed by the health system or the education system um it's about getting to the root cause of why children are presenting as they are and facing these difficulties um my daughter had a partially retained moral reflex which is a common one um so if you have a child with sensory issues nine times out of ten it's going to come back to a a retained moral reflex it's the it's the fight flight reflex um and it's, it's connected to the fear paralysis reflex um which is how we perceived danger so the two are, are linked um and two people will be familiar when when a baby is born one of the checks that they do is to to do a little drop with the baby and what should happen is that the the arms slide out to the side and then immediately come back to the, the chest that's good that's what we want that shows that the reflex is there and it's serving its purpose but that reflex should be integrated in infancy and when it isn't um the child presents with a whole host of difficulties from from sensory issues um, poor impulse control which is has been a biggie in our family really poor mm-hmm. emotional regulation hypersensitive things um mood swings easily distracted so you can see how all of those issues even the sensory to some extent can be mistaken for 
you know, what we deem as, as poor behaviour. And mm. quite often children are punished as a mm. result of these behaviours that are completely out of their control. Mm. So it's, you know, it's when we when we work in settings, what we're ideally we're looking to find out if if these barriers are caused, if there is a barrier to this these that's causing these behaviours, um, or is it chosen? Um, now, the good news is that the reflex issues can be addressed quite easily. Um, and as a practitioner, I would always advise that, that if you suspect something is not quite right in terms of a child's behaviour or where they're at developmentally, go with your gut. Just because they're ticking all the boxes for the system, you know, they might be great at the phonics, they might be able to manipulate a pencil and produce neat writing. The maths, they might be flying in the maths. But are they really tense and sweating while they're performing those tasks? Are they able to sit with good posture during those tasks? Have they got good emotional regulation? Are they able to communicate effectively and form, form friendships? Are they able to recognise other, other children's emotions and needs? Mm. If something is amiss somewhere, don't just ignore it because they're ticking the boxes for the system. We have a duty of care to do our best in terms of all-round development for these children in our settings. Um, and I also believe that we have a duty of care to support families as well. Um, so I would also say, you know, don't be afraid to have these conversations with parents. Obviously, we don't want to alarm them by saying, we think your child this, this and this. We're not, you know, we're not there to diagnose. We're not in a position to say, yep, we think your child's autistic or ADHD or whatever. But have those conversations. Did do you have this difficulty at home? How can we support you? We've noticed this, but the good news is we can do this to help. Mm. Um, and if we look at how we support, how we address retained reflexes, if we address it in the early years um, or in, in early key stage one, it can be as simple as 10 minutes a day, five days a week, mm. half a term or a term. We can integrate that reflex and all yeah. the problems then just sort themselves out. They just subside. Yeah. And it's it's frightening to think that when it is so simple to address, we're not doing it. It's, it's just yeah. getting missed by the health system and the education system. And yeah. there are so many children going under the radar because there's not enough red flags to raise concerns for, whether it be, you know, autism. We're not making those referrals to get those statements, which we know now is taking longer and longer because there's more and more children coming through with those additional needs. Mm -hmm. um, so it's about recognising the needs of those that don't present with major red flags, but are struggling in some aspects of day-to-day -day life or academically that would typically go under the radar that if we leave, you know, it might not be so much of an issue now, but by the age of seven, we might be at a point of school refusal and going into, you know, anxiety and mental health issues. Yes. And I think that's always the thing that is striking to me around physical development, particularly, is that 
it, there is a time sensitivity to it, isn't there? The, one of the reasons that physical development is one of the primaries in the early years is because actually it's time sensitive. That yeah. in terms of the uh, many of these physical skills or physical stages of development, children do need to acquire those skills or those stages of development during the early years up to the point of five. Yeah. Because often if they don't, then actually they will find it much more difficult to acquire those skills later on. Absolutely. Yeah. Do sometimes see children, you know, who are older, who are maybe in year four or year five, who say you are, you're walking up the stairs in school, the steps in school behind them, and you notice that actually, although they are kind of in year five, that actually they're taking one step at a time and putting both feet together on each step. They've not, you know, which is something that you would see, let's say, for a three-year-old child, perhaps. Yeah. But you, but you wouldn't necessarily expect to see for an older child. Yeah. And and yet, actually, it's much more difficult to acquire that skill later on. I think what's often missed as well, Andy, is that when people see that there's a difficulty physically, like the example you've just given, we don't appreciate the impact that that has on overall development mm. and the impact of that on the child creating difficulties for that child day in, day out with, you know, just performing daily tasks. Um, but it will have a detrimental impact on some aspects of their academic performance. Um, again, going back to Sally Goddard Live, she's referred to various studies to show that you know, there's a, there's a strong correlation between children having poor physical skills and, and low levels in terms of the national curriculum. Mm. Everything is linked back to the physical. Um, we, we don't think anything as practitioners about a child having poor posture. Well, you know, so what if they're slumped in a chair, if they've got a curved spine? Does it really matter? Well, yeah, it does actually, because if we're sitting children in a chair or on the carpet and they are sitting slumped with the head looking up at the board what that's doing is putting constant pressure on on really important nerves around the back of the the neck and in the ears which then has a detrimental impact on the sound processing if the sound process is in it where it needs to be that's going to have a detrimental impact on the the phonics and the written work so yes it's only posture but that's how it can impact on the academic side of things. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. It's, if, I, mean, I would think that people listening will want to know more. So where where did you start in terms of reading or what, what books would you recommend to people? And you mentioned already one, one, you know, in terms of research, but what, you know, what would, what would you recommend? So I, I keep harping on about Sally Goddard live, but I think she's, she's amazing. Um, yeah. I mean, this this book, um, she's produced various books over the years. Um, one's more sort of family-friendly. Um, mm-hmm. So what, you know, with that saying that supporting families in getting the basics right and giving a basic understanding of how to support good child development from, the, from day one um, mm-hmm. and the importance of the family as well. There's then other books that focus more on the reflexes but one one book that sort of encompasses everything that she's done is 
attention, balance and coordination, the ABC of learning success. Um, I mean, it's it's heavy. It's heavy reading. Um, yeah. But if if you're really serious about understanding these difficulties, then that it, it tells you everything you need to know um, about the you know the reflexes and the impact that, that each has on the child. Um, an easier read is Disconnected Kids by Dr. Robert Melillo. Now he he looks at things in a similar way to Sally Goddard Live. He recognizes that children that have different labels, you know, whether it's dyslexia, ADD, autism, everything comes back to this, this disconnect in the brain that the brain is out of sync. So he talks about how certain areas of the brain are developing as they should, but other other areas aren't for whatever reason. And we don't need to get caught up in labeling, whether it's this, this or this. What we need to do is just find the root cause and, and start mm-hmm. tackling it. Um, and he, he points out that what we tend to do is focus on the child's strengths But what that does is exaggerate the gap and then creates further problems because it's creating a a greater mismatch between different centers in the brain. Um, What what his work is all aimed to bring the brain in sync, if you like. So the areas that are falling behind, let's play catch up to bring those where they need to be so that those connections between left and right and higher and lower hemispheres can be where they need to be to help that child to function more effectively yeah um to learn um charlotte davis is an ex-head teacher um originally from london she's recently moved to york and she is a consultant for tomatists which provides sound therapy to address auditory processing issues. But if you look at some of her case studies, um, it's absolutely fascinating, um, the work that she does. And she she touches on reflexes as well. But when we put children through the exercises to address the reflexes, if that is done in sync with some sound therapy, it just speeds up the process much, much quicker. Um, So she's given examples of year seven child, um, ADHD, anxiety, school refusal, and literally six months of the, you know, performing regular exercise with sound therapy. And we've got this, this happy, engaged learner, confident, completely transformed in you know in a matter of six months yeah. um so the, the support is out there um but it, it's just a case of getting word out and and us as practitioners recognizing and acting on our concerns um yeah. there are there is support out there um it's just a case of, of recognizing when it's when it's needed yeah absolutely Helen, it's it's absolutely fantastic to speak to you, and um, thank you so much for joining us. All all of this is I, I find it really interesting. I think that the depth that we're going into here is a depth that actually in schools and settings we we don't talk about enough. That real yeah. that real depth of understanding around physical development is and how it connects 
to all of those other areas and why it's so important is something we don't talk about enough, I think. So thank you so much for joining us. I know that people listening in will have found all of the things that you have to say really interesting we'll, and we'll have challenged people, I think, to really rethink yeah, what they do and what they have in place in terms of routines and in terms of their practice and provision, both inside and outside. It will really, I think, challenge people and get people thinking. So thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank for you. The podcast. Um, it has been really, really interesting and, and and so useful, I think, to talk to you. So thank you so much. No, thank you for having me on. It's really, it's, it's good just to to try and spread the word and and mm. get support for people that are struggling. And, you know, I, I just refer back to the the early days of our youngest and what, what difficulties we faced. And I just wish that we'd have known that then what we know now yeah. um, and had a bit more support. So it's, you know, it's about getting word out to support settings, but, but families as well. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Take care. All the Thank best. Thank you, Andy. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And there you have it. Um, thank you very much to Helen for joining us on the podcast this week and also to you people for listening along as well. Um, if this episode has really got you thinking about how you support your children in terms of in terms of physical development, then we've got a great course coming up that I think you'd be, you'd be really interested in. It's called Let's Explore Physical Development. And it, it, we, we look, it's part of it, we look in detail at those fine and gross motor movements and how we support them within our practice and so within an enabling environment. Um, so yeah, if that's something that you'd be interested in, I'll put the details in the podcast information so you can click on it and go straight to it. Okay, so yeah, thank you for joining us again this week, everybody. That's about it for this week. Um, have a good week, everybody, and we'll see you next time.